Adu-can-you-mab. Adu-can-you-mab. Pop quiz, multiple choice. Is Adu-can-you-mab A, the location of an upcoming international Formula One car race, B, a popular wellness activity that promotes weight loss by combining elements from Tai Chi with mindful chewing practices, C, Donovan's Wi-Fi password, or D, none of the above? Answer, none of the above. Aducanumab is a new drug for treating Alzheimer's disease that was recently approved by the Food and Drug Administration. Despite few being able to pronounce it, the approval of aducanumab has sent shockwaves through the medical community. I'm Matt Davis. I'm Donovan Most. You're listening to Minding Memory. Today, we're joined by Dr. Jason Karlowich. Dr. Karlowich is a professor at the Perman School of Medicine and a senior fellow of the Center for Bioethics at the University of Pennsylvania. He's a physician, dementia researcher, and accomplished author. Dr. Karlowich's research focuses on the ethics and policies regarding Alzheimer's disease. He's written a column for Forbes and has published two books, Open Wound and more recently, The Problem of Alzheimer's, that explores the history of the science and culture regarding Alzheimer's disease in America. Jason, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Ken Lenga from the University of Michigan, who was a longtime collaborator with Dr. Karlowich, and friend of this podcast, is also with us today. Ken, welcome back. Thanks, Matt. Great to be here. To set the stage for the discussion today, we want to give a little background to listeners who might not be familiar with what's been going on. The drug aducanumab is an amyloid beta-directed antibody that was developed by the company Biogen. It also goes under the brand name Aduhelm, which isn't surprising they decided to shorten the name for advertising. The drug is designed to clear amyloid from the brain, which intuitively seems like a good idea. Like any other drug being considered for human use, a series of trials were conducted to determine how well it works and its level of safety. The Food and Drug Administration is responsible for evaluating new drugs here in the United States. Biogen applied for an accelerated approval and in November of 2020, the FDA convened an advisory committee of 11 experts. After reviewing the findings from the trials, 10 voted not to approve the drug, and one voted uncertain. In other words, no one voted to approve it. To many people's surprise, in June 2021, the drug was approved to treat Alzheimer's disease. So to start things off, I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about what we know about the aducanumab trials. From my understanding, they have not been published in any sort of peer-reviewed journal. So what do we know about the trials? Well, we know what uh, Biogen presented um, in collaboration with the FDA, because notably the presentation that was uh, given at the November meeting was a joint presentation by Biogen and FDA as opposed to two separate packets, which was notable. What they reviewed were the results of two phase three trials and one phase one trial and a little bit of safety data from a small phase two study. Bottom line was one phase three trial showed that the drug had an effect greater than placebo in the high dose group. The other trial didn't show that. And ever since the first trial, we've shown that the drug does reduce amyloid. So what the FDA was faced with and what America was faced with was a mixed set of data 
with a lot of need to sort of tease out what's going on to try and make sense of results. And uh, uh, the rest is, as they say, history. So, Jason, when you say one trial had an effect greater than placebo, I think people interpret that as like uh, improvement or getting better. Can you yeah. just clarify what you mean by an effect greater than placebo? Yeah, no, good point. Um, that's that's doctor talk for being and totally opaque. You know, so what you're talking about with Alzheimer's disease is a slow progressive loss in cognitive abilities that over time translates into losses in functional abilities. And so when you're tracking someone over, say, 18 months of time, you'll find as a group, the folks with Alzheimer's disease lose more and more points, if you will, on a measure of their day-to-day function. And so what the drug showed was that, uh, the study showed was that folks who got the drug compared to folks on placebo uh, didn't have the same rate of change on that measure of uh, overall function condition. Uh, uh, so didn't decline, as you will, over time. As well. And if you could put... Uh say the amount of change or the reduction, the, the reduced decline into clinical context, was it a, a clinically significant uh, difference in your, your opinion? That is an opaque uh, uh, question and, a, and the answer even more opaque because, and this, this is what haunts the disease and the approval is so um, uh, uh, frustrating because um, uh, what you're measuring is a comp- complicated measure of function and cognition, and what you're left with is making leaps of inference, uh, percentages of of change from baseline. Essentially, it was a good example of why a longer and better studies were needed to really translate that into uh, meaningful outcomes in day-to-day life. Uh, But really, I actually don't think that the effect size is is the biggest problem here. It's one problem, but it's not the biggest problem. I think the more fundamental problem is just the credibility of the data to make a conclusion that the drug works. What should we know about the study population? Mostly persons who had what's called mild cognitive impairment, meaning clear cognitive impairment measured with testing and noticed by others, but only, dare I say, mild, meaning causing inefficiencies in day-to-day activities, not disabilities. person takes longer to get things done, maybe makes some mistakes, but catches them, as opposed to someone with dementia who makes mistakes and doesn't catch them, for example, and needs someone else to help them. MCI is a legitimate, recognized clinical presentation of Alzheimer's disease pathology. You know, it starts out subtly and gets worse. And about 75% of the subjects had the MCI stage, and another quarter had mild-stage dementia. So we're talking about a population of people whose level of disability was more around, um, as I say, inefficiencies and and troubles with higher-level instrumental activities of daily living. A very worthy population to go after in an effort to try and preserve function um, before they developed more disability. And they all key, they all had to have evidence of elevated amyloid done on a PET scan. So PET beta amyloid is the phrase of choice. In other words, it was measured using a PET scan. And if you didn't have elevated amyloid, you could not get in the study. You had to have elevated I, I recall that you, um, in, in your book, you talk about some of the history uh, uh, around, uh, you know, the, that that term, mild cognitive impairment, and kind of where it came from that I found really interesting. Yeah, it's kind of a risk factor for developing dementia. How does this drug, now, now you mentioned uh, something about amyloid already. So how does this drug in particular compare to other drugs that are already on the market in terms of how it works? They're completely different than the drugs that are on the market that are advertised and labeled by FDA for the treatment of Alzheimer's. Those drugs play around with, excuse the phrase, they, they alter levels of certain neurotransmitters that plausibly make neurons function better, et cetera. Um, in contrast, this drug uses um the logic of immunotherapy techniques 
um, to bind up amyloid uh, in a manufactured antibody and clear it for the brain. Uh, it's an elegant um, a mechanism that was dates back to the turn of the century, uh, around the uh, year 2000, that was first kind of, sort of uh, published and studied in, in, in mouse models uh, of Alzheimer's disease. And it's been a very interesting um, a, a mechanism to go after amyloid as well as other protein-related uh, uh, diseases. It started out with a bang, the, am the uh, immunotherapy hypothesis. I would say it remains a viable uh, approach, but, it, but, but I think the initial promise of, you know, this is going to clear the disease from the brain and make this disease, you know, like, like akin to the vaccines for COVID has not played out. And, and, and here we are today witnessing just that. Jason, the um, in terms of the this mechanism of action that you were just talking about, in terms of amyloid, in some of the things you've written, you, you make the comparison to um, cholesterol treatment. So uh, a lot of people are sort of thinking about aducanumab as uh, you know statin, where you're um, reducing cholesterol in the blood. Uh, we know that uh, lower levels of the bad cholesterol reduce your cardiovascular risk. Um, and again, sometimes that analogy is made to um, to the aducanumab and, and treating amyloid. Just wondering if you could uh, expand on that uh, comparison and some of the some of the things that are yeah. left out in that. Well, it's a useful heuristic, and it's just that it's a heuristic to help understand. Namely, you know, um, a drug goes after what we think is a key moment in the a disease's pathophysiology, and if it therefore interrupts that pathophysiology or alters it, it'll alter the natural history of the disease. And certainly, I think, you know, clinical trials have borne that out with altering levels of um, low-density lipoprotein, for example. And so that's the heuristic for what we're talking about when we talk about the same, you know, using this approach to amyloid. But then things get more complex because it, I think that at that point, one should just stop the analogy and just say, well, now what do we know about the pathophysiology that leads to dementia caused by Alzheimer's? And it's still a work in progress. Amyloid certainly is one actor, but so is tau protein. Um, and in fact, I think some of the real encouraging data from the last few years has been the data that looks at how tau protein changes um, over time and its relationship to changes in amyloid. And so I think for many in the field, this sort of, you know, oh, it's like cholesterol, lower it, you'll do better. It's like, no, 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 that's only useful to give you this idea of the of a surrogate treatment. But beyond that, it's just sort of comparing the pathophysiology of, I don't know, cancer to the pathophysiology of, you know, uh, of, uh, of COVID infection. It's just, it's just, you start to lose, the analogy just breaks down. It's no longer applicable. You know, I mean, I mean, everybody knows, I mean, most people know amyloid, Alzheimer's disease. So it's kind of like this target almost. I have a silly question. To what degree does higher levels of amyloid in the brain actually correlate with cognitive function? Yeah, so this is this is the entry into why I think the field on went to bed on the night of June sixth. You know, saying that the amyloid hypothesis and amyloid as a surrogate is a very provocative hypothesis in need of testing. And by the evening of June seventh, was had their jaws on the floor saying, "What just happened?" Because certainly, you know, there's provocative data that as amyloid accumulates, the Alzheimer's cascade worsens, that is to say, tau spreads, and you start to see cognitive decline. But what's notable, by the time you have sort of disabling cognitive impairments, um, you uh, really have no further accumulation of amyloid, and a lot of the action now is in tau. And in fact, 
you know, when we read an amyloid scan, we just say there's elevated amyloid or not once you sort of get beyond a certain level. And it becomes very uninteresting. And, 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 and indeed, when you look at the aducanumab data, I think the heart of the matter where everyone just, again, jaws hit the floor was the relationship between amyloid reduction and changes on this cognitive measure, functional measure, was a very poor relationship. It was not a strong correlation, not the kind of correlation, to go back to Ken's point, um, that you see when you reduce LDL and see concomitant reduction in the risk of cardiovascular events like a heart attack, death, or stroke. And I think that's where the field is sort of a little bit aghast, if you will, to make that leap of a claim that manipulating an amyloid level correlates with a clinical outcome. Uh, and hence the sort of, and, and indeed FDA, I think, fundamentally agreed because they said we're going to give this conditional approval subject to a, a confirmatory trial. So already they were saying we're not that confident about the relationship, but we still think it should be put into clinical is again a source of enormous uh, disquiet, both you know clinically as well as well as uh, politically and, and from a policy perspective. Is there anything else we should know in terms of like kind of some of the history underpinning why the field seems to be so focused on amyloid? I, I, one, yeah, one point that I I, I feel very guilty of, uh, I confess. So I I am guilty of along with others of saying there's been no new treatment for Alzheimer's in the last twenty years. It's a great rhetorical opening to say, well, if anyone can come along with a treatment, I'll take it because it's been two decades. And that statement is factually correct. But I don't think within it is the, uh, are actually uh, 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 is a more important and deeper story. Within that is a more important and deeper story. And that story is that in the last several years, the progress towards being able to see the disease in a living human and test drugs on that individual uh, and others like her has been really spectacular. And I, I think that um, this notion that there's been no new treatments in 20 years and so therefore we have to approve something kind of ran ragged over the fact that the last several years we've made a lot of progress and we're getting really close. And this approval, which lowers the evidentiary bar for getting a drug out there now, really disrupts that progress that was occurring. I, I sort of wonder how much like imaging played into part of this too. I mean, there's, there is something about something that you see. I mean, in your book, you talk about some of like the, the targets, you know, in terms of imaging with PET scans and stuff like that. It's like, once you see something on a film, it's like the intuition is, well, if it's in there, get rid of it. You know, it just makes sense to people just like osteoarthritis or something. Yeah, no, I, I, you get the logic of it. I'm not, you know, disputing it, but, but the proof's in the data, no amount of like good hunch, you know, supposition belief in the end drives science. I mean, science proceeds by open public debate and discussion of data, which back to the Atacanumab approval, as the, the hearing that was held in November was a hearing that involved whether the drug qualified for standard approval as a safe and effective therapy. The approval on June 6th of 2021 used an entirely different regulatory mechanism with no public discussion of that, um, of the evidence to support that. So it was essentially kind of a secret process that occurred, you know, behind closed doors and down in Bethesda. If you think back to those earlier classes of medications that that were approved, the the only other FDA approved treatments, how did this process compare to that process? <laughs> there are there are weird historical parallels between the cholinesterase inhibitors and these current drugs, um, and the current the aducanumab story, I should say. Um, namely, the cholinesterase inhibitors were birthed, if you will, in controversy and haunted by controversy 
including an initial study that was, frankly, a scandal. Now, I don't think there are any scandals in any of the studies of aducanumab, although I do think the company cut corners with regulatory permission on doing dose finding and some other probably important intermediate steps. But setting aside those corporate decisions, you know, we're sort of almost repeating some of the aspects of the history of the cholinesterase inhibitors, namely, you know, unclear data overinterpreted and um, uh, driven along by, uh, frankly, an emotional story about desperation, the need to satiate hope, and um, frankly, behind that, a robust business model. I mean, the, the, the group that's clucking the loudest about this approval is pharma and the diagnostics, because all of a sudden, a lot of money is going to start flowing into the system. And even the critics of the drug will ruefully confess that it's win-win, if you will, for, um, for, for the clinics, because now money's going to start flowing in to pay for all the things we've wanted for the last 30 years. And that was the case with the cholinesterase inhibitors, at least that was the theory. But I'll wrap up with what the cholinesterase inhibitors did for, for the Alzheimer's field was they did build a robust research infrastructure, a robust clinical trial infrastructure. And that, that I think that that alone, you could argue, was a sort of all right, fine. But I guess my point is that infrastructure was built, and I think now we're seeing it used yet again more in the service of business than in the service of patients. Thinking about the process in one of Matt's earlier questions, I asked you about sort of the the positive trial and how important the positive trial was. And I said, I, I think you made a comment about like the, the, the minimal effect was not what really bothered you about the process. Can you fill in what did really bother you about the process? Yeah, so a couple things. Number one, Biogen skipped phase two studies, so they really didn't have a good sense of what the dose of the drug should be. So when they designed the phase three studies, they had multiple doses. Turns out later on, they would figure out what the right, what the probably more effective dose was. So protocol amendments around dosing occurred. Um, they knew going into it that APOE carrier status probably influenced both response to the drug as well as risk. They amended that because they hadn't really learned enough as well about that from a good phase two study. So skipping phase two in a rush to get to the answers uh, certainly was a cost um, to pick to, 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 to quality data. And then they tossed in into both trials futility analyses. Futility analyses are not done for patient safety and well-being. Futility analyses are done for corporate well-being to find out whether it's time to just cut your losses and run and move on to the next drug. Well, they did a futility analysis. We could debate the methodology, let alone the use of it. And the futility analysis showed that the, that the studies were unlikely to succeed. They shut them down. Long story short, more data rolled in. They reanalyzed the data, and they got the mixed result they got. And what, is, what ensued from there was just a series of sort of data torture exercises that were certainly useful to try and better understand how to do the right next study of this drug. Because there is a chance that this drug actually works. You just have to better define the population. Um, but instead... FDA, frankly, went into collaboration with Biogen to figure out how we're going to tease out a label. Do you think that there's a, um, if this had been a medication for another illness, do you think that this process would have resulted in the same outcome? Or is it something unique about dementia and Alzheimer's disease that, that this played out this way? Well, I will make one observation, which is a slight lateral from your question. Of all the diseases of the, of, the, of the late 20th century that have had drug development, Alzheimer's drug development has been plagued by controversy, scandal, and 
whatnot. And, and I, it, there's got to be some underlying theme to explain that other than just independent series of events. I mean, Dimabom was essentially a fraud out of Russia. Um, you know, there was a notorious event where an investigator uh, uh, essentially fed information from a, a DSMB to investors. Um, we've talked about the cholinesterase inhibitor story. I mean, you know, you just kind of run down the list and say, what's going on here? And and I I, I kind of wonder how much it might be the sort of high-octane emotions that surround the disease and the desire, quote, to do something. Um that kind of leads people to sort of make bad judgments. And I'll offer this reflection. You know, we kind of knew that FDA and Biogen were kind of working together. And, you know, so we never really spoke up about that, number one. And then number two, we never really pressed FDA, like, are you guys thinking about accelerated approval? And I regret that because because I think this was all happening, we find out, in the beginning a year ago at least this time. And yet it just sort of happened and we let it just happen. And I, I actually feel kind of bad about the events that have unfolded and now the consequence because of the consequences we're facing. Could, could you talk a little more about that accelerated review process and how common that is with the approval of new drugs? It's not uncommon in the oncology space and other areas where there's, you know, bad diseases, need for better therapy and provocative pathophysiologic mechanisms, you know, that can stand for a clinical outcome. So it's, it's not unusual. It goes back to the HIV era when doctors were making clinical decisions based on CD4 counts, and they would you know track CD4 counts to track how sick someone was because that evidence was pretty darn good. And so the argument was, well, why don't we just look at change in CD4 counts to stand for effective treatment? And you know many said, well, no, wait a minute. Does the treatment actually make people live longer and not likely to die? And the you know people with AIDS said, well, you know what are you talking about? The more CD4 cells I have, the healthier I am. Thank you very much. I think it's a tighter causal argument there. Anyway, it gave genesis to these regulations for the use of surrogates to approve a drug in the absence of clear clinical benefit. And they've been used in the oncology space. And here now they were used for the first time in the Alzheimer's space. Again, I think these analogies are useful as heuristics. So people kind of go, oh, I get it. But then I think trying to sort of say the HIV story is the Alzheimer's story, you know, is a little like you know, using physics to explain chemistry or, you know, or they're just different diseases with very different pathologies, very different kinds of, 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 of events. And I, I think the leaps of sort of just like CD4, so too amyloid, just like LDL, it, 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 that's more art and poetry than it is science. I'm sorry. And Jason, just to um, dig a little deeper on that accelerated approval process, my understanding um mainly related to the statements from the advisory board folks that resigned is that the advisory board was specifically instructed not to consider, um, you know, amyloid reduction as the outcome. And yeah, that, absolutely. You, you find it in the transcript. You yeah. can find it in the transcript. The, the, uh, the advisor from Washington University, his name eludes me, asked about the relationship between amyloid and CDR, namely the poor relationship that was discussed by Tristan Mazzi, the biostatistician, in his report. And Billy Dunn, uh, who was leading the FDA's presentation, swapped, swapped the point aside. And he said, we're not considering that uh, the role of amyloid as a surrogate for clinical outcome here. And later on, his colleague, uh, Kelsey would, uh, would, Dr. Kelsey, would reinforce that point. So that was off the table. And I think that's what makes many people very upset about, not just upset like, you know, well, you know, you did but very bothered 
about the FDA process because it's come out from Stat News reporting on Project Onyx that FDA was in conversation with Biogen about a pathway towards accelerated approval before the November meeting. And so the full truth is not clear. And what's coming out is disturbing. Another point on accelerated approval, it's not a consolation prize. It's not a consolation prize. And what you sense, not sense, what you can read from the memos that FDA has now released is that FDA was divided. One part of FDA, Billy Dunn and his group, wanted a standard approval. Standard approval, safe and effective, market the drug. Another part of FDA did not support standard approval and probably based on their analyses wouldn't have supported um, accelerated approval. And then um, Dr. Stein from the Office of Neurotherapeutics says, I don't support standard approval, but I support accelerated approval. And so essentially this decision was not a consensus. It was a compromise. And, and, and accelerated approval is not designed for, well, you want that, I want this, so let's split the middle and give it accelerated approval. But that's what happened. It's, 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 it's utterly maddening. If we can just shift gears just a minute from the approval process. Um, a couple minutes back when Matt was asking about the trial, you explained that about three quarters uh, were diagnosed with MCI or mild cognitive impairment and then about another quarter with mild Alzheimer's disease. Um, but that's not what the FDA indication is for, correct? And so any thoughts about how the the leap from um, who was studied in the trials to who it's approved for? Yeah, so you're, so good point. So the trials had very well-defined eligibility criteria based on severity of cognitive impairment, presence of amyloid, pet amyloid imaging, uh, and, and indeed a very earlier trial of the drug had been done in a population with slightly greater impairment in cognition was negative. So you've got all these data swirling around. The label comes out and um, it says out of helm is indicated for the treatment of Alzheimer's disease. Okay. You go on, you know, MCI, dementia, severity, presence of amyloid, none of that. It's a very broad, open-ended label. And that means the FDA has essentially left it to the field of medicine and frankly, the insurers to decide uh, for whom is this drug reasonable and necessary. And, um, you know, you could argue, well, FDA is not practicing medicine. They just say, look, this treats Alzheimer's disease. And I, I get the tight conceptual logic. If you think that amyloid is Alzheimer's and changing all amyloid across the entire course of the disease changes Alzheimer's, well, these data are good to go for the entire spectrum of the disease, including, I guess you could say, preclinical Alzheimer's disease right? Namely, you know, Alzheimer's with only amyloid and tau and no cognitive impairment. But, but I mean, if you look at the data, you'd say you're making leaps far beyond the data you have in front of you. And so, you know, interesting, I will say even the most ardent proponents of the approval, you know, Stephen Soloway from Brown University, for example, will say, but I'm only going to prescribe it for persons who fit, quote, the trial's eligibility criteria. And the, the Alzheimer's Association has endorsed that position. And even Biogen sort of has kind of walked, you know, yes, we think that that's the right way to prescribe this drug. Although somewhat ironically, they have said that if enough patients are prescribed it, they'll be able to lower the price. <laughs> Great logic. But, you know, I can't fault the company for doing what companies do. You know, I mean, that's, you know, it's like it's like, you know, wolves hunt sheep. You know, that's what they do. Jason, the. Um 
So health services researchers uh, usually use the term indication creep. Uh, you know, when a, there's an indication for a medication, um, when it's in that population, the risk benefit seems good. If you start, if the creep starts happening and you start giving it to people who are lower risk, they're, they're still at risk for the side effects, but not probably less likely to get the benefits. And it, it feels like they've, they've baked in the indication creep to the approval with the way they wrote the label. But then you also brought up this uh, thing, this entity that uh, we've talked about for a long time, preclinical Alzheimer's disease, where folks who have the amyloid in their brain, but uh, are still thinking normally, still uh, um, not, not any measurable or, or obvious um, decline in cognition. To talk a little bit more about um, what's coming with preclinical Alzheimer's disease and what, uh, what this might mean for that. Yeah, well, I mean, the conceptual logic of preclinical Alzheimer's disease makes total sense. I mean, you know, you talk about a disease that unfolds over years before someone's got either inefficiencies or disabilities caused by cognitive impairment. And so it makes sense to try and identify individuals who are on that, to use a popular phrase, cascade, you know, of, of, of neurodegeneration and intervene then. I mean, I, I can't quarrel with that approach. I mean, I think most reasonable people would agree conceptually, uh, ethically, it makes sense. The challenge, of course, is to find which to define which who are those persons who are quote on that cascade, and that's a hot and active area of research. Um, and I, I God, I hope that most would agree. You know, right now it's premature to start uh, uh, using aducanumab in, in that population. Although I have no doubt there will be some who will do that. I, I, I just I, I I think we can rest assured with that. So yeah, so you know the next so but but the the, the logic would be you know identify people on the basis of some combination of biomarkers of the disease, you know, a tau, amyloid, neurodegeneration, et cetera, intervene with the drug and slow down the natural history of decline. Um, you know, makes sense. Atacanumab uh, could start to be used in that way. Uh, I have the hunch that the uh, insurers will make every effort to try and tap that uh, approach down because, because, I don't think a reasonable clinician right now diagnoses preclinical Alzheimer's disease. So I, I have the feeling that that'll be a, a, a sideshow with a lot of a lot of heat, but not that much light. I, I think there's a greater concern about when do you stop, you know, and 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 the other side of of of, of eligible, namely persons who are sort of mild to moderate, if you will, in their severity of their dementia. So, so with that in mind, I mean, especially like for a population of people that might not have cognitive issues yet, but have some signs of amyloid deposits in their brain, you have to really think about the side effects, right? The, the side effects are pretty bad for this new drug, right? Well, you know, they are and they aren't. I mean, I, I think in the con they're a good example of in a, in a well-done clinical trial with adequate monitoring done by people who this is what they do, you know, you can detect the side effect of the micro hemorrhages and micro bleeds early on and stop the treatment early on. And pretty much mitigate, you know, um, long-lasting disability. Although certainly some folks have to stop the drug, can't tolerate. So I'm not trying to make light of the side effect, but it, it, you know, I, I, I'm an internist and I'm used to giving drugs that cause harm. But the flip side is they clearly have a benefit, um, and that's where things get contentious. I think with this drug, um, I think though, out in wider clinical practice where people are not as healthy as a typical clinical trial participant. Um, they've got other diseases, particularly hypertension, uh, perhaps blood thinners, etc. I think this risk will only become more of a um, uh, of a feature of the drug's 
uh, a, a clinical profile because it's just going to be a, a more diverse in terms of disease, phenotype, et cetera, uh, group of people. So, you know, we'll, let's see what the, uh, the one thing you can pick up after approval is, you know, uh, safety signals, you know, once you get people enrolled in registries. For, a drug, for a disease like this, registries are useless to, useless to determine efficacy, but they're pretty good for determining, um, you know, safety signals. So we'll see. We'll see. You know, p- people are starting to write about, they're starting to kind of roll with this and talk about what this might mean if X amount of people start taking it in terms of costs and all these types of things. I was wondering just, you know, I, I would think that like brain swelling and hemorrhage as a side effect, you know, the public might be pretty spooked out by that, but maybe not. I don't know. People that are desperate, you know, and, and struggling with cognitive issues. I don't know. Yeah. You know, I think, I think once you start talking about risk, if a reasonable expert says, look, there is a benefit here and it is possible for individuals to achieve that benefit. You know, risks become a matter of, I'll use a bad word, but I think it emphasizes the point, case. Namely, then it's up to the patient to decide if having you educated me about these risks and benefit, is it worth taking this drug? I think the problem with aticanumab is we don't even know if it's beneficial. I mean, we don't know if it's beneficial. Um, FDA wants confirmatory trials to show that. And, you know, I think it's the perfect condition for a clinical trial to enroll people who are otherwise healthy study the drug, monitor it well, really figure out whether this drug benefits, really establish whether the amyloid hypothesis is back to the hypothesis for treatment. But that unfortunately isn't the case. Um, the drug's out there now with uncertain benefit, a documented risk. And so you're right, individuals will make that choice and some will take it. I have a few patients who want to take it and I will prescribe it to them because I have to respect their self-determination for a disease that takes away their ability to self-determine their lives. I, I really, that's a very fundamental ethic for my practice. I have many, though, who after they learn about it, say I'm not interested. So just shifting gears, I, we've been touching on some of this already, but sort of taking a, a step back, what do you think this means for the future, B- both in terms of like the approval process for medications in general by the FDA and for dementia specifically? Well, I think for the approval process for medicines for the FDA, uh, uh, there's a lot of uh, 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 big questions that need answers quickly. Uh, and I guess the biggest one is what is going on at FDA and what will be the process for the review of some of the other drugs uh, that uh, are similar in their mechanism in terms of uh, uh, targeting pet beta amyloid measures. And, and, and uh, are we going to see those drugs now pop out with um, accelerated approval mechanisms and, and uh, an evidentiary bar that's been dropped? That's extraordinarily concerning. You know, I, I mean, I think the problem now that we're facing is, you know, we'll have all these different drugs popped out there with unclear evidence about any of them. You know, it'll take longer than if we had done well-done studies to figure out whether any of them actually work um, because of the inefficiencies of trials trying to be done when something's available clinically. Um, and, and you know, that then ramifies in terms of the costs of all these drugs being, you know, used, uh, et cetera. Um, I'm very worried about trust in the FDA. I mean, you know, I think it's it's a question. I don't want to answer it because I still need to learn more. But I think we need to ask ourselves, do you trust the FDA? Um, and that starts with Janet Woodcock and goes on down from there right now, I think. We need to learn more. What's going on there? What are they thinking? How are they approaching drug approval now? Because what just happened is doesn't seem to be uh, the way we thought regulatory science functioned. Secretive. Um, it was quiet. Uh, it was... Uh, not upfront and open, and uh, that needs to be reviewed. Um, and then, you know, uh, we'll see the impact on ongoing clinical trials of other promising drugs. I mean, will people drop out 
and instead choose to take this drug. I, that's a very legitimate decision on the part of someone who's willing to be in research to say, look, I'd rather just get a guaranteed drug. I'll take those risks rather than the risks of a clinical trial. I can't fault that. But we'll see the next six to 12 months. We'll see what the enrollment rates are, what the dropout rates are. And we'll see just how much this is going to put a kink in the ability to do the research we need to do to finally figure out a drug that's a safe and effective treatment. Do you think this is going to perpetuate sort of the focus still on amyloid? You know, I, I, I guess I, for me, it hasn't. I mean, I remain, you know, sort of a two cheers to the amyloid hypothesis, very keen to see what happens when uh, with tau in this cascade, um, as well as other mechanisms. I, I So, you know, um, to be sure, in the short term, companies that own anti-amyloid drugs with a similar mechanism as this drug, you know, are, are doing, are pretty excited because all of a sudden they found a, a pathway to approval quicker than they thought. And again, I can't fault a company for doing that. I wish they didn't. But again, I can't tell, you know, uh, I keep on using carnivorous animals, but I don't know. I can't tell, I can't tell a rose not to bloom, you know, <laughs> stay in your bud. Don't bloom yet. If they figured out a way to quicker to bloom, so be it. But boy, you know, that's why we have FDA. And I keep on going back to FDA here. So to what extent do you think clinicians should feel like they need to offer this thing? You know, on the before the FDA's decision, uh, it wasn't an option. And then after it, it suddenly becomes an option, even though the evidence is is no different, hasn't changed. Um, so I, I, I personally struggle with, with whether yeah. uh, it's the right thing to offer it or not. And I totally hear you. And I'm on record, you know, wrote in stat. I said, I will not prescribe it. Well, now it's been approved. What are you going to do? And I've said, I'm a reluctant prescriber. And the reason why I'm a reluctant prescriber is as much as I'm bothered by what FDA did on a number of levels of um, science process and policy and the practice of regulatory science, I have to respect their authority their decision-making, and they have allowed this drug to be out there. And now that this drug is out there, I then have to go to a core ethic of practicing being an Alzheimer's doctor, which is to do everything I can to respect and preserve and defend the autonomy of my patient. It's really a heteronomy because they're wrapped up in the lives of others. And so, you know, if someone, after learning about all the uncertainties, risks, benefits, as well as the process that led to approval, I think patients need to know the story behind this drug. Um, because I think it informs this is why it's out there. Do you trust that process? That's a question. And after all that, someone says, yeah, I want to do this. I'm going to have to support them in that. I feel an obligation to do it. Um, but, you know, I'm a reluctant prescriber. Uh, it'd be great to have you back on sometime, you know, another episode to discuss your book, The Problem of Alzheimer's. But just briefly, what do you want our listeners to know about the book and where can they find it? Yeah, so the problem of Alzheimer's, how science, culture, and politics turned a rare disease into a crisis and what we can do about it, is available in hardback, ebook, and an audiobook uh, read by a wonderful actor. Um, and uh, the takeaway points is science and culture turned a rare disease into a big disease. And then pretty quickly after that, politics made it a crisis. Um, having said that, because politics made it a crisis, actually, politics is us it's humans and so we can actually address the crisis even right now even without anacanumab there are things we can do right now you know having said that though i'm i'm i i don't think we're going to drug our way out of this disease but i do think we should expect to have effective drugs to change the natural history sadly back to anacanumab that's not this drug so. this has been an interesting discussion late at night here in ann arbor if you listen carefully 
I think you can hear the sound of clicking keyboards among dementia researchers writing new grant proposals. Jason, Ken, thanks so much for coming on. To our listeners, make sure to check out Jason's new book, The Problem of Alzheimer's. The book does a wonderful job in portraying what people living with dementia and their loved ones go through and the history of the disease. If you enjoyed our discussion today, please consider subscribing to our podcast. Other episodes can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud, as well as directly from us at capra.med.umich.edu, where a full transcript of this episode is also available. On our website, you'll also find links to our seminar series and data products we've created for dementia research. Music and engineering for this podcast was provided by Dan Langa. More information available at www.danlanga.com. Minding Memory is part of the Michigan Medicine Podcast Network. Find more shows at uofmhealth.org slash podcasts. Support for this podcast comes from the National Institute on Aging at the National Institutes of Health, as well as the Institute for Healthcare Policy and Innovation at the University of Michigan. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the NIH or the University of Michigan.